Welcome to Walking with Freya, a journey through special needs parenting. This podcast is a place for parents and caregivers of children with special needs to share stories, the very real struggles and challenges we face, along with the inevitable love and joy these children have brought into our lives. This is a place for unapologetic honesty, well-intentioned laughter, and endless support. A safe place for us to learn, share, discuss, and help each other navigate this often unexpected journey. Be kind, be supportive, and when you can, keep the humor. My name is Annie, and welcome to Walking with Freya. Hey everyone, I hope all is going well. So I have a fantastic episode for you today about siblings. I interviewed this woman, Annie Tremel, a few weeks ago, and I've been excited to share it with you. And we'll get into that in a minute. I just wanted to check in first. So yesterday, Freya and I spoke with her class about Prader-Willi syndrome. So this was over Zoom, of course. They don't go back into the classroom until next week. And it's a small school, so she's been with these kids since kindergarten. They all There's one class per grade. So they all kind of know each other already, but it has been a year since they've really hung out, most of them. But it was good to kind of sit down with everybody and be clear about certain things, like why Freya can't be left alone around food or why she sometimes falls asleep in class. And I explained a little bit about PWS in general, but told them mostly about how it affects Freya personally, and kind of gave them some ideas on how they can be helpful as her friends. And this was mostly having to do, of course, with uh, food access, not sharing their food, things like that, but also her need for space if she gets upset, or even asking her, handing her some yarn for finger knitting if she is picking and can't stop. We had time for questions afterwards, and... There were some good questions, and I think it all went pretty well. I was nervous for it, but it went it went well, and Freya, I prepared her for it, and she did great, and she was sitting right next to me uh, with a little bit of space between us, but by the end of it, she was certainly snuggled into my side, and I could, you know, I could tell she was maybe feeling a little shy or... A little overwhelmed, but then at the end, she got the last comment. She wanted to make sure she got to tell everybody that she has ridden her sister's horse without any help. Yeah, so that was really sweet. And afterwards, I talked to her, and she said it. She thought it went good. So yeah. So I, if anybody is thinking about that, I think uh, I think it's a good thing to do. You know, if you, I think it's better to educate those around us and and make sure that they are clear on certain things because these kids knew certain things, but maybe they didn't understand why. And now they understand why. And yeah, it was just all around good. And then I also uh, mentioned to them this idea about doing some kind of physical challenge for PWS Awareness Month, which is coming up in May, and they got excited about the idea of a push-up challenge. And so I'm thinking about doing something like that. I was thinking of a walkathon, but they I mentioned push-ups, and they were more excited about that. <laughs> and getting sponsors and donating the money to FPWR. So I think it could be really great. I'm really excited. I was thinking of a walkathon and then making everybody t-shirts that said walking with Freya, which I thought would be really cute, but 
maybe too much. I don't know. <laughs> that might be too much for Freya, but just one of the, my little ideas spinning off. Let's move on to the episode. Oh, one more thing. Um, as always, you know, leave a review, leave a rating. It really helps the podcast, and I really appreciate it. It helps get the word out. So now for today's episode, Annie Tremel grew up the older sibling to a sister with autism and an intellectual disability. She's a former school psychologist, counselor, and college instructor, and now uses her education and her experience to help families find connection among the chaos so that everyone's needs are met. Annie shared with us the sweet details about her relationship with her sister and then spoke frankly and without judgment about the typical ways that siblings may feel and react to having a child with a disability or atypical needs in the family. She offered advice on how to start the much-needed conversations around everyone's experiences and even how to prepare our children for the responsibilities of caretaking once the parents are no longer around. I'll give you a hint, as Annie says, it doesn't have to feel heavy. So if you're interested in learning more about Annie and the work that she does with families, you can visit her website at AnnieTremel.com, and you can follow her on Instagram at AnnieTremelConnects, and I'll put all these links in the show notes, as usual. And some of you know that uh, I have three daughters, Freya's in the middle, so when we get talking about the different perspectives and reactions of the siblings in a family where someone has a disability or quote atypical needs it really hit me even going back and listening as I edited I got kind of choked up again special needs parenting is a very emotional journey at times we so often bury emotions or reactions in the presence of the new obstacles or successes well Okay, I shouldn't be speaking for all of us because maybe your experience is different, but I'll say that this is what happens to me. I feel like I easily bury things so that I can try to live in the moment. And I don't think that's a bad thing, but it's also important to go back and address the things that can weigh heavily. And I can usually tell what needs looking at or what is poking at me under the surface by this type of reaction, the sudden and unexpected swell of emotion and tears at the ready. When I interviewed Katie and Steve from the Family Success Secrets podcast, you can check out last week's episode, that was number 69, they spoke about how helpful and bonded their typical, that's in quotes always, their typical children are with their son with Duke 15Q. And I'm not going to lie, I was a little jealous when I heard that, just that their first reaction was, oh, they're so bonded and it's so sweet. And not that my girls aren't sweet and bonded with Freya and helpful and have their own lovely relationships, but typically these days when talking about them together, my first reaction is more frustration than adoration, if you know what I mean. And that's probably because it's a pandemic and because they're stuck in each other's spaces all the time. And, you know, we do, we do fun stuff together, but they get really irritated with each other easily especially the two little ones, which I'm sure is really normal. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> After talking with Annie about this, I know that it is quote-unquote typical and that my girls are not alone in their experiences. So, if your child with special needs has siblings, if you are a sibling, are close with a sibling, or just want to have a better understanding of special needs families, 
then this episode is a great resource. So I really enjoyed speaking with Annie, and I'm grateful that she came on the podcast to share this time with me. And I'm grateful that you all are here too. So thank you. All right, Annie, thank you so much for being here. I'm really happy to have you on the podcast. So just for my listeners, just to kind of place you in this realm, you are a sibling. You have a sister with autism and an intellectual disability, a former school psychologist, school counselor, and college instructor. And now you work as a support strategist for parents and siblings of children with special needs. So for anybody, yeah, anybody listening, uh, for people listening, that's, um, this is Annie and this is what she does. And so I would like to start, if you would tell us about your sister and your relationship with her. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And thanks so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Um, So my journey kind of as the sibling of a special needs uh, child starts when I was about two. I'm the oldest of five. Um. And my sister, Abby, is the third child. She's born about uh, two years after um, I was. And then we went on to have, there was two more boys in the family. Um, It was my relationship with my sister, you know, especially as a child was just what you might expect. I mean, we, (laughs) we had our typical sibling situations, you know, Um, and her being, having autism, you know, her, she had limited verbal capabilities. She could talk, but, you know, articulating and expressing herself wasn't the easiest thing. So as we get older, uh, she tended to articulate herself in other ways, you know, in physical ways and behavioral ways. Um, and me being in my forties at that time, there wasn't even technically when she was first diagnosed an autism diagnosis. So she had all sorts of different diagnoses um, until they ended up coming up with that. And as of course, over time, that kind of really helped us identify the struggle she had as, as that diagnosis got more research, got more study, um, and got more strategies to help with it. Um, but in the meantime, you know, we just kind of, we were just kind of winging it. So, you know, as you might expect, we kind of had the <clears throat> typical sibling relationship where as a, like an older sister and a caregiver, you know, we drove each other nuts a little bit, but I also was fiercely protective of her. Uh, I very much saw that she wasn't the same as other kids, even from a young age. And so I definitely grew into that person who was um, caregiving, helpful, kind, quiet. But if you messed with my sister, you were going to hear about it. And I was going to tell you. (laughs) And as we got a whole lot older, um, you know, our relationship progressed and changed. She progressed and changed just like I did. And now as adults, um, I still provide that caregiving aspect. We still have that same type of relationship and that I know she looks to me for help when she needs it. But of course, she's got a lot more resources and caregivers and other people in her life um, as an adult. And so it's definitely shifted. It's definitely changed. Mm -hmm. Is she living with your parents or is she independently living? Right now, for the last... Oh, gosh, I'm going to have to think back for the last, like maybe 15, 20 years, she's lived in a group home um, and an assisted living facility, which she lives in the city um, and in the general area that my parents and I both live. Um, so we're able to see her regularly. However, she's got um, a, a care home where they take care of her daily needs. And yet she gets some semblance of having her own life. It's worked out really well um, for her and for us. I will tell you, you know, it's so hard, especially with siblings with this or with children with disabilities, 
to a, almost sometimes I almost feel bad because it's like we don't allow them to grow up into adults, mm. you know, to develop those personality traits, those characteristics that we see in other adults. We sometimes we almost repress that. And I feel like her being in this facility, while there, of course, there's been ups and downs, there's been difficulties, there's been struggles um, that we've dealt with. Overall, it's been so much better for her to be able to develop other relationships with people, to develop friendships, to see how other people interact with her um, in a way that maybe, you know, we being a family got in some habits and some ways of interacting that may have limited her in certain ways. This allows her to explore those things. Mm, yeah, so true. I remember in the beginning, uh, you know, with Freya and, and learning that, you know, they people with her diagnosis don't live successfully independent lives as they say it um mm -hmm. that you know and then well the option was that she was going to stay at home because of course we wouldn't send her to a group home why would we do that because you know we were very uneducated and, and ignorant and had you know kind of this uh you know just a different view of it and then reading about how many kids you know even with these disorders and these and these challenges that we see they grow up and they they do want to move away they want to have their own lives and they and this is and there are many wonderful places that uh you know can provide that for them and so it was in a way it was like a relief like okay wow like she she may want to be independent from us and yes when we want if if we're able as much as we can right depending on our individual child's you know needs we want to encourage that right i think it's and it's it's a really tough decision in the disability community because i'm sure you've experienced what i've experienced is that there's a lot of judgment there within the community people have a lot of strong feelings about you know um mm -hmm. care homes and assisted living or having children live at home and i i really hope that 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 knowledge that understanding and that acceptance expands within the community to understand that just as varied as different disabilities are Families are just as varied and individual kids needs are just as varied and adult needs are just as varied. So it's really important to consider, you know, what that person needs. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, let's not judge each other because we're all just doing the best we can. <laughs> Try absolutely. to figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah. Um, so I was looking at your Facebook page and you have uh, some very sweet stories up there and one of the things that i read was about you and your sister connecting through music that was one thing when she was growing up you know as with many depending on where you're on the spectrum with many kids with autism hard to reach sometimes um but man she loved music which worked for me because i just grew up loving music too and one of the things she asked that she absolutely loved was MTV. Like this was the time, this was this was old school MTV. This is all <laughs> right. music videos all the time. There weren't all the crazy shows, it was just music. And she loved it. She knew every lyric, she knew every song. And that allowed us kind of that, frankly, it was great for me because I love music too. So it's always playing, you, you always knew what was happening. You know, as a kid, you love pop culture. Typically lots of kids do. And this kind of fit in with that. And it definitely carried with us throughout our, adulthood. I still literally to this day, we cannot start a phone conversation without singing words to specific songs. It's kind of part of her routine. It's how she gets, you know, it's how she starts a conversation with me. It's expected. It's predictable. She loves it. And it, it sets her on an even kill when we start our conversation, no matter how she's feeling, no matter how I'm feeling. You know, it's just a great way to, we, we expect that from each other. And it, it's just a nice way to keep 
some solid footing in life, especially these days when nothing feels solid. Mm. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's great that you have that that connection and that it can be that kind of that platform, that foundation that that so many people need. Yeah. So I'm interested in because um, I have, so my daughter with Prader-Willi syndrome is my middle daughter. And then I have okay. a 16-year-old daughter and uh, and then an eight-year-old daughter, or well, almost eight. So the two youngest are 16 months apart. Um, and, okay. you know, they speak a lot about, you know, in general, people talk about the, your placement in your family as the sibling, if you're the oldest or the youngest. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm just wondering if you noticed in your own family if you could apply any of that to perhaps other relationships with your sister, you said you were the kind of became the caretaker, which, you know, whenever I feel like I can always pick out an older sibling, I was the youngest. So (laughs) I am definitely the baby and not the caretaker. (laughs) um, So yeah, did you notice anything like that in your family? Oh, absolutely. I think we kind of, my particular family kind of fell into those stereotypical roles. You know, I as the oldest, not just because I was the oldest of a, of a sibling with disabilities, but also because it was the oldest of five growing up in the 80s. I mean, <laughs> we, we had a little more liberties, you know, and right. we spent more time together and, um, you know, things are a little looser. So I definitely feel like I fell into that role. I feel like whether or not my personality is the way it is because of being an oldest sibling or, or whatnot, you know, it was that, you know, kind of take charge, um, helper, uh, really astute, observant type of thing going on. And I know lots of, I mean, I'm, I'm similar to you. I feel like I can pick out an oldest sibling very easily. Um, mm-hmm. I can relate to a lot of what I see. Um, and yet I look at like my youngest sibling, um, the youngest child, my brother, um, he doesn't have the same type of relationship with my sister, um, Abby. He, he's still got a great relationship with her. However, it looks very different from mine. Um, it, it's, much less about being a caregiver and more about um, relating in a different way, more about relating based on lots of fun aspects and lots of uh, jokes and, and all that kind of stuff. So I do think that there's something to be said for that. I, of course, you know, there's exceptions. I think we all know right. that. And I think it depends too on how your parents, as the parents to a family with a child with disabilities or, or a chronic illness, I think it really depends too on how they kind of view the world, how they frame things. Um, and that has a huge impact, I think, on how siblings act toward each other in families with disabilities. Yeah. Well, it's funny because people, uh, I've heard a lot of people talk about, you know, being a sibling to a special need and they go into, um, you know, some kind of work in that area. And my oldest wants to join the FBI. And so I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> did Great. I do something wrong? <laughs> I mean, I'm not opposed to it at all. It's just funny that I'm like, oh, well, my kids don't want to. (laughs) Well, first of all, I think that is a fantastic like dream. That's awesome. I love that. Um, But I, you know, what's funny about that is I've had this conversation with a number of people and I find it to be a really sensitive topic because I also, you know, in the research, it shows that siblings of people with disability, they tend to go into helping fields at a much greater rate which we know is great because we know the resilience they have, the empathy, the intuition, the perspective, the observation skills. We know all those are fantastic. 
fantastic for helpers. We also know that those helping professions cause burnout at a much faster rate, mm. right? And unfortunately mm -hmm. for siblings, oftentimes for siblings of children with disabilities, they never really figured out how to set real clear boundaries. Sometimes they have trouble determining how do I advocate for myself and for others at the same time. They don't always know how to create that circle of support. So when you take those things into adulthood, into a helping profession, sometimes, I mean, burnout happens fast. And oftentimes siblings of children with disabilities, their identity is so wrapped up in being the helper that when they mm. hit that burnout, it can be devastating as an adult. You know, they don't know where to turn. They don't know how to make changes in their life or that they even can. They don't know how to see themselves outside of that role. So I think it's a, it's a huge thing. Um, I'm so glad you brought it up because I think it's a huge thing that we encourage them to do so and use those qualities. And I think that's great. But I think we have to do our due diligence and also really work with them to make sure that if they do that, that they're doing it in a way that is healthy for them and not simply continuing some of those behaviors that help them survive many aspects of their childhood. Mm. Yeah, you had another story on your Facebook page about running track and yeah. how you pushed yourself so hard to run track and it was a struggle, but you just, you really, you just really wanted to be accomplished at it. Mm -hmm. And then you later got diagnosed with asthma, right? Once you collapsed on the field. Right. So do you want to talk yeah. about that and the feeling that that drove you? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I think for me, I was kind of your stereotypical sibling of a child with disability, especially an older sibling, and that it was important for me. My identity was kind of wrapped up in helping others um, and in taking care of others. And also another part of that is not burdening others when things weren't quite working for me, when I needed help, when I didn't know what to do. Um, or when I wasn't sure. So rather than like, for instance, in this, in this track story, I did, I ran varsity track starting my freshman year of school. I was a long distance runner. If you looked at me, you would never guess that, you know, I'm five, one, I'm curvy. I'm not built for distance running, <laughs> but I, I did it um, because it was asked of me and I had a, a semblance of success. Um, and I knew that if I worked hard, I can maintain that. And it made people proud of me. Um, it made my family, it made me stand out for the first time. Um, people were noticing me rather than my sibling. Um, it got me attention from other people. Um, and it kind of helped me fit in that box that I had built for myself of, I have to be perfect. You know, I have to be high achieving. I have to, you know, I have to be accomplished and I have to do it without burdening other people. So I did that for quite a while until my body gave in. I just couldn't figure out why I couldn't do it because I had always been able to power through everything else. You know, just, just put your head down and power through was kind of my motto, which I think is common for SIBS. Um, and unfortunately, I just couldn't do it. I, I started having trouble where I couldn't finish races. Um, I just, and when that fell apart, everything fell apart. And I had definitely had a crisis in my teen years at that point. Um, many years later, I got diagnosed, I decided to follow up on it and I got diagnosed with asthma and it mm. helped me understand what I had been doing to myself. It was one of those turning points where I was like, wow, you know, I've, I've put my body through all of this because my mind made a decision that I, that I wasn't gonna ask for help that I didn't know how that I couldn't. And mm. so it was definitely a turning point in my life, you know, towards making a whole bunch of changes and really examining my life as a sibling and how it had affected me, the good and the bad. And mm -hmm. I just kind of moved forward from there. 
Yeah. So, so was it that your, I mean, do you feel like that you, your parents had to put so much energy into your sister and did you feel overlooked at times growing up? Was that a common feeling? It was, I think, you know, and I think I didn't realize it when I was younger, you know, when you're a younger child, all I wanted to do, I was praised for being helpful. You know, I was praised for being so kind, sitting with my sister, um, being that child that was just um, easy. I was praised for that and I loved it. It wasn't until I got into my tween and teen years and had to develop my own identity that I, and I started getting those, I started having those really weird things like, man, I want these things for me. You know, is it even fair to ask for these things for me? My parents are already burdened and busy and doing their best, right? And they've got all these people to think about that I didn't know if it was okay for me to ask for what I needed. And oftentimes, unfortunately, with a family that large and with disability in the family, you don't always get addressed when you do ask what you need. It's just simply not all that easy, right? Mm -hmm. So I think for me, I don't know that I consciously felt overlooked until I got to a point, frankly, a whole process through my tween into teen years. And then I don't even know then that I knew I was feeling overlooked. I just got angry and I wasn't sure why. Hmm. And for me, you know, as a compliant child, that anger, I, I transferred that anger into um, my own inner turmoil. I wasn't going to put it on anyone else. And I wasn't going to, you know, I didn't know how to ask for help or that I didn't even know I needed help. Um, I just turned it inward a really, like in a really destructive way in many ways. And I think that that's pretty common for siblings, even no matter what kind of parents you have, whether they're, you know, the most attentive, best parents ever. I often share this with parents of children with typically developing and special needs. They do their best and they work really hard to pay attention to that typically developing sibling and they're doing wonderful work. But I think what many families don't see is that this isn't something they did simply by the nature of being born into a family and having a family with disability there are different levels of small trauma and big trauma there that are inevitably going to happen no matter what you do. And it's really important to, that you address those with the intensity that they require. Um, it, takes, it takes more than, than your attention because so often you have no idea what your typically developing child is thinking. They're simply not gonna share with you. Um, and it's not because you've done something or you've caused that in them. It's the nature of being a sibling of a child with a disability. <laughs> sorry I, I just got really emotional with all that oh I'm sorry I'm, no no it's good I mean I'm just you know of course I'm listening to you as uh you know and thinking of of my children you know my my three daughters yes. and and their experiences and you know my oldest daughter certainly prides herself on being helpful and being the dependable helpful one well, I've told this story before, but you know, when I got Freya's diagnosis, my oldest daughter was, she was seven and mm. she happened to be the first person to walk into the room after the doctor called me. Yeah. And, uh, and you know, that's like one of the, one of those parenting moments that you look back on, you're like, Oh God, you know, why couldn't I just keep it together? But, um, you know, she walked up to me and right. she said, mama, what's wrong? And I just hugged her and I just sobbed. And, uh, I just think about that, like how, like right from the start, you know, like, and even before that, before we got the diagnosis, um, she had to help so much. She was at home all the time. She was homeschooled and, yeah. you know, like she would have to sit and rub Freya's feet while I was trying right. to nurse her. Cause she would try and keep her awake. 
and just right. yeah so like just she went from being and, an only child to you know yeah. a third parent and and I think it's important to note that I think and I, I don't want to um, project this on you I don't want to assume but in working with other families and being a parent myself of two very different children um, I think that guilt we have to accept that that is innate but we also have to understand that just because we feel guilt doesn't necessarily mean we've done anything wrong, <laughs> mm. right? Guilt mm -hmm. is not, we, we, have, we have to make the decision when we feel that guilt or shame or whatever. We have to know, we have to look at it objectively and know whether or not there's something we could have done to change it. And I would highly encourage you to think about the fact that there was nothing you could do to change that. That was simply timing and life. Mm -hmm. And I well, don't think that there's, I don't think there's a, a sibling in the world who doesn't understand that. <laughs> mm -hmm. you know yeah well it's interesting because I ended up interviewing her for this podcast and I was That's so fantastic <laughs> I was so nervous to bring that up like it, in my mind before the interview there was going to be this like big moment where you know we brought that up and she cried and I apologized to her like I mm -hmm. like in my head that's how I thought it was going to go and when I brought it up you know like so do you remember this moment and she did not remember it Mm -hmm. <laughs> she right. didn't remember it <laughs> and then when I said asked her if she had felt uh you know kind of abandoned in those first couple mm -hmm. years we were trying to figure mm -hmm. it out she said no we were just all parenting Freya together yes which boy is, she's really astute yeah she is <laughs> but that goes back to that caregiver helping you know yes um yeah so on your website, you talk about being the originator of the SIB method. And I'm wondering yeah. if you're willing to talk about that with us. Sure, sure. And that's just the, the system I use when I work with families. Um, within that method is a method that I, I most often use um, when I'm working specifically with families about their relationships with their typically developing children or that relationship between the typically developing child and the special needs child. And it's the SEMI method. And it's called the SEMI method because obviously as we've talked so often those, those siblings, they're not seen, they don't feel seen. Um, unfortunately, they are integral parts of their family and often end up doing what they need to do through, through their childhood um, and doing what their role is, what, what every family has you know, made their roles. But when they get to that young adulthood phase or that adulthood phase, they look back and they wonder if they were seen, they feel unseen. So in that method, what I essentially do is I focus on safety in the family because we can talk, we talk about safety all the time when it comes to family connections and typically developing families, but it's a little more intense in a family with disabilities. Safety doesn't just include that mental safety, that emotional safety. It obviously also includes physical safety because so many of our siblings with disabilities there's physical issues. Uh -huh. There's ways we have to keep them safe. We have to keep our home safe that we might hold, that we might handle our home in a different way to make sure everyone is safe. And those issues make a difference, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> in how we parent and how we provide safety for our other children. You just can't ignore the fact or ignore the needs of one child to attend to another. So it looks different. Um, the other pieces of the CME method, that's the S. The other next piece is engagement, um, which really translate to attention. You know, how do we provide the attention to all our family members that they need in a way that number one fits it within our lifestyle as a disability family and 
doesn't require us to put more onto our plate. And then the third feeling um, after safety and engagement is um, empowerment. And that really is that concept of control. So often in special needs families, we feel out of control, <laughs> you know? Uh -huh. And it's just, again, the nature of the beast. We do our best to set things up to work the best they can, but just by the fact that disability is involved, that children are involved, that there's so many moving parts, there's not always a lot, you can't predict everything. And sometimes there's chaos on a daily basis and sometimes it's specific incidences that occur and we need to be prepared for both of those. We have to develop a circle of support for our daily life um, and resources. And we have to develop a plan for those chaotic things so that when they, the chaotic moments or events so that when they do happen, they'll still be stressful, but they're not gonna throw us off our access, right? Mm -hmm. That's both for siblings and for adults. So that's kind of the method I use. Okay. So I'm, I imagine that it looks different for different aged siblings and you know i'm just thinking we've talked about my oldest daughter and then you know then comes the youngest one who is closer to freya's peer and i've i've already she's already vocalized um that it feels unfair to her sometimes that she feels mm -hmm. like freya gets away with certain things that she doesn't get away with and so is that just i'm just wondering is that like a big sign that like i'm you know, not that I'm not balancing things well. <laughs> no, I think it's a sign that you are a typical family with disabilities. I think, I think that's a really great question. And I'll, I'll tell you this, the fact that your younger child is saying that is very typical within families. We often see the older siblings who are more like I, like we've talked about another parent, another set of hands. Um, and they put a lot of mental and emotional energy in they see that as part of their role and they're less likely to express difficulties or, or needs. Um, but the younger kids are much more likely to let you know, yeah, this isn't fair. Mm. <laughs> That's not fair. You know, it's unfair. Whereas the older children, instead of saying that's not fair, the older children tend to say, I'm fine. Everything's fine. It's fine. You know? <laughs> yeah. Right. So they, they do respond in very different ways. The fact that you have your kids doing that is very, very typical. And again, that's what I want to share with everyone. And I especially want to share with parents because parents, we all want the best for all of our kids. There is no doubt. We, there, there is not one parent I have met who has ever, ever wanted more for one child than another. And what's really important to recognize is that when, when our families react like that, our younger kids say, it's not fair. Our older kids say, I'm fine. This is extremely typical. Um, and it's a result not of you not having done something. It's a result of the fact that you have a disabled child in your family. It happens in every family. So it's not what you've already done. It's what you can do in the future to help you, to help them feel connected within your family and to feel like everyone's needs are met. So how can I do that with my eight-year-old? Mm -hmm. I mean, I just, why is it, she's not quite eight yet, but, um, you know, <laughs> I just recently, a few months ago, finally had the conversation with her about you know, trying to explain the differences and why things seem unfair. But, you know, when you're talking mm -hmm. to a seven-year-old, you're not really sure right. what they're getting, what they're not getting. Right. Oh, absolutely. Well, and this is what I'll say for you with a child who's around seven or eight, um, because of course, developmentally, very different than your teen, right? Yeah. So, um, you know, at seven or eight, it children are really 
they're at that point where they're just starting to see the gray. They don't just see the black and white. You're probably noticing this in other ways in her. She's starting to see um, having less of just that concrete thinking that there's a yes or no, but more of that middle thinking where she's starting to ask critical questions, right? About, you know, getting more information about something, about understanding that others have different perspectives and that's not bad. So you can take advantage of that developmental point with her at seven or eight by starting to deepen the conversation a little. The way I would start the conversation, this is just a recommendation, is when you try to explain to her what's happening, you'd be amazed at how much she's willing to accept as fact and how much she understands that just certain things are a part of life. And it's okay to say, rather than defend or rationalize why certain things went the way they did, it's simply to say that that is a result of someone in our family with a disability. I know it doesn't always seem fair, but it is what it is. Maybe have a slightly deeper conversation that allows her to ask questions about why things happen. Make sure it's a discussion. Um, you know, ask her what she thinks, ask her why this might be, you know, if, if you have one idea, does she have another? And I think it's really important to, you know, end, you don't, they don't have to be long conversations, but just end with the concept of, but we have choices in our family and you have choices now and you will in the future. So it's important mm. that if you need something um, or you want something or confused about something that you ask because you can't get your needs met if you don't ask. You might not always get a yes. Sometimes you might get a no, but you don't get your needs met unless you ask. And we can't grow as a family unless we talk. Mm. I love that. Yeah, making sure she understands that she she has a choice and she has a voice and she needs to use it. And absolutely, that's that's I love the way you said that. A choice and a voice. It's perfect. <laughs> Let's get into the work that you do and what you offer families, so that it's clear to this audience what um what what you do and what you offer. Absolutely, I have a couple of arms to my business. Um, I work with typically developing families specifically on behaviors in children so that they can connect. But when it comes to the arm and by business that works with special ed families, um, I work to help families uh, find that connection for their family among the chaos so that everybody's needs get met. So essentially I offer um, session programs. So um, for some, I offer you know, an initial 75 minute session, maybe to answer one really pressing difficulty you're having. If there's something you just need to get fixed now, we'll work in that 75 minute session to get that done. But beyond that, I offer eight or 10 session packages, sometimes beyond, um, where we work both with the parent and with the child, um, and sometimes the entire family, depending on the family dynamic, uh, to move towards creating that connection. We set boundaries, we learn, we, we learn how to set boundaries, we learn how to advocate for ourselves and others at the same time. And we learn how to cultivate that circle of support in that time. Um, and of course I offer additional packages well beyond um, for ongoing support. Mm -hmm. And and this can be over Zoom, I'm gonna say. This is always, yep, always over Zoom. Sorry, I should have clarified. Yep, no, no, it's these are virtual. These are virtual meetings and you know, it's great because of the time we live in, but frankly, it's really great for disability families because it's, we don't as disabilities families have the same flexibilities all the time that others do. Mm -hmm. So it really allows for a little more flexibility in meeting when we need to meet. Um, and I also often for families um, have an add-on where I offer additional support via Voxer. 
which is a walkie-talkie app so that they can ask questions at any time. Um, if something happens, they can literally pop in the app, record a message for me, and I'll answer them within 24 hours to help them keep, continue to move forward. Because we know that, you know, if you don't have a session with someone for another week, it's real difficult when something pops up, you don't know what to do. A week's a long time to wait. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, that's great. And so people can find you on your website and I'll make sure to post a link to your website, Annie Tremel, T-R-E-M-L.com. Right. And so I had, I just want to ask you one more question, more along sure. personal lines, if you don't mind. I, was there no. anything else you wanted to say about your work? No, absolutely. I, the only thing I'll say is that um, please, you know, go to AnnieTremel.com and find me, learn more about me. But I always welcome people to directly contact me. Um, you can always contact me at hello at AnnieTremel.com or you can DM me at my Facebook page. I'm at Annie Tremel Connects on Facebook. And if you DM me directly, I'll be sure to respond to you as soon as I can. Great. Great. Thank you so much. So how is the, I, well, I had a woman on that I interviewed. She was a sibling and she was raised with a son, I'm sorry, with a brother who had mm -hmm. Outer Willie syndrome, but he never got diagnosed until he was older and which was after her mother passed away. And so oh, uh, yeah. Cynthia found herself, you know, I, I believe she was mid twenties and she was now she took guardianship of her brother and yes, I wow. mean, quite a transition. Yeah. So, um, you know, so her advice what, to parents was to, you know, kind of have everything squared away before they go. Well, I was just wondering if you had anything to add to that or if that, like, if you feel confident that, that your sister is, is squared away and well, and so I'm laughing on this end because not because it's a funny matter, but because this is such a huge issue um, within the disability community. I'm a part of many um, groups um, online and offline um, of adult siblings. And I've used to work with adult siblings, in fact. And one of the largest issue by far is that guardianship issue. And most often it stems back to childhood. So I definitely have a thought and some advice here. And it is this, um, so often, parents in their attempt to make life as normal and good as they can for their typically developing children don't share enough about the child's disability, don't share what it takes to be a guardian of a child with a disability, um, and very often they simply put off that conversation about later guardianship, you know, should they pass and other things. Number one, because it's difficult, and number two, because they don't want to put it on their child. Um, I am here to suggest and, and really plead with adults to have these conversations when you're with your kids when they're very young. Um, you, most parents don't realize this, but I have met many, many children as young as four or five, most often in the range of like five to seven or eight, um, but as young as four or five, who will say to their parents out of the blue, so they're having these thoughts, they say to their parents, will I be taking care of my sibling when you die? Just the fact that they're having these thoughts, what a huge burden wow. and not a typical thought for a child that age, but very <laughs> common for children, siblings of children with disabilities. They're thinking it even if they're not saying it. And it's really important that we share this thought with them. It's important we say to them, you know what? This is something we're gonna talk about a little bit all the time as you get older, but it's important to you to know that you will have a choice when it comes to that time, you will have a choice and we'll talk about those choices and you'll know what those choices are well before anything ever happens to me. 
And by sharing that with them, it takes a lot of the burden off them. They understand that their life is not a foregone conclusion as far as being a guardian. They know they will know that it's something that's going to be discussed. They'll be mentally prepared. They'll understand what's going to happen or what might happen, what could happen. And they'll understand that they have a role in how that happens and how that goes down. I mean, that's all you need to say to a five-year-old because that's all they can understand. But then of course, as they get older and hit those different developmental stages, it's really important that we continue the conversation, that we start to involve other resources. You know, we start to in disability lawyers, estate lawyers, future planning, you know, transition people, um, that we start to include them and involve them. Um, and that we include our child in this information. They don't need to know the nitty gritty necessarily. You know, they need to be able to live their childhood, but for them to know who, who to contact should something, should something happen, to them, for them to have an idea of what they need to do, that there are people in place who already know about the plan and can help walk them through it. All of that kind of stuff is really important. Wow. It's yeah. heavy stuff, yeah. It <laughs> Yeah, I don't, I don't think I've ever had that conversation. Well, and I'm not, you know, that's really common, mostly because as the parent of a child with a disability and other children, you're busy, you have other things to worry about right now. Mm -hmm. So the great news about this is, is that if you take it a step at a time, over time, you can do this, and you can make this very feasible so that, but that, but by the time your children are, you know, young adults or adults, there's quite a bit in place and they understand, and they don't feel like they can't ask. Because mm -hmm. there's nothing worse as a child than making assumptions, because that's what children do if we don't give them, if we don't have conversations with them, if we don't share things with them or open up um, discussions, they do make assumptions. Mm -hmm. yeah. And oftentimes the assumption they make is, well, this is all on me. Very mm -hmm. rarely do they make the assumption that someone will help me figure this out. They mostly often, most often make the assumption, well, this is on me. If they said I can figure it out, that's what I'll do. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that's, and that's quite a big burden. It is, yeah, it's a huge burden. They don't even realize at the time what a burden is, but they tend to feel it as an adult. Uh -huh. Wow, um, this conversation has been amazing, and <laughs> I did not, I was not expecting to feel so emotional about this. So I obviously yeah. have some work to do. Um. But, you, but also, you know, I appreciate you allowing me to have this conversation with you. This is important to me, as you can probably tell, I'm very passionate about this, um, simply because um, I love the disability community. I love my family with disabilities, both the typically developing people and the, and the you know, people with disabilities. And I, I just appreciate the opportunity to share it with others. I appreciate the opportunity to talk to individuals just like you, like one-on-one. -on -one. Um, and sometimes I feel the guilt of the heaviness of it, right? Because mm -hmm. anytime we bring up things that we haven't been thinking about, it can feel really heavy. But I also wanna convey that it doesn't have to feel heavy. It might feel heavy in the moment, but I encourage people to just sit with that heaviness, not jump to conclusions, not jump into action mode immediately, because that's what we tend to do, right? We wanna fix. Um, I tend, I encourage people to just sit with it, think about it and understand and, and believe that it doesn't have to be heavy. It can be light. Um, it can be significantly lighter. Um, and that like many other things, it, we need to sit with it and get some mental clarity before we move forward. Cause we'll realize that guess what? This is totally doable. 
Um, and oftentimes it allows us to focus on the, on the future rather than the past. I've never met a parent who was perfect <laughs> and who didn't have regrets, <laughs> right? Let's uh -huh. not focus on that. We're going to focus on the future. Well said. Yes. And, and I love the reminder just to keep those communication lines open and remind my children that they do have choices and maybe I don't have the answers. I, that's what I'm really getting also is that like, you know, to keep talking with them about it and I don't have to have the, the exact answer right away or the solution or, or the plan, but just to keep it open, like we're going to keep talking about this. You're going to have a choice. We're going to talk about this and this is how it is. Right. And that everybody's going to be okay. Yeah. You know, don't you, there are many people who can help take care of your brother or sister. It doesn't uh -huh. have to just be you. Um, you need to know that now and you need to know that in the future. And I love that you, you know, you're really focusing that thought about just keeping that discussion open because the truth is if we do that um, and we do it well, and it's not hard to do it well, um, we have instincts as parents, just follow those instincts, keep that communication open. They will lead us to what we need to do. They will ask questions that we go, oh, I haven't figured that out for them yet. Mm -hmm. And then we figure out who to contact and how to put that in place. Um, they'll lead us directly to what they need if we listen. Mm -hmm.